This is Pathways. I'm Randy Brodkowitz. Today, we're talking with Dr. Donna Nelson. Dr. Nelson received her PhD degree in chemistry from the University of Texas at Austin with Michael Dewar and did a postdoc with Nobel laureate Herbert Brown at Purdue University. She then joined the University of Oklahoma as a faculty member as the first woman tenure track faculty member in the Department of Chemistry. Dr. Nelson is known for her research in single-walled carbon nanotube reactions and for the development of a new synthetically useful technique for gathering information at, at a mechanistic level on addition reactions of alkenes. One other activity for which Dr. Nelson is known is in the world of television. She was the science advisor for the AMC TV series Breaking Bad and strongly supports scientific accuracy in both media and chemistry textbooks. How has Dr. Nelson become such a successful proponent for enhancing diversity in the sciences and for scientific accuracy while being an active scientific investigator and teacher? Let's find out. Donna, welcome to Pathways. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you today. Pleasure. And, and I'll just mention one thing. You did your postdoc with Herbert Brown at Purdue, and he won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in the late 70s. And my first organic chemistry teacher at Michigan State University was one of his PhD students, uh, Michael Ratke. Yes. And he was a fantastic teacher. And yes. uh, my, my recollection is he went to Stockholm with uh, Dr. Brown when he received his prize. So that was really, really exciting. Yeah, Dr. Brown took a whole lot of people, former group members with him. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, fan, that's fantastic. So now let's start from the beginning. When did you get interested in science or as I like to ask my guests, when were you bitten by the science bug? Well, um, as a child, I was very interested in what my father did. My father and grandfather were both MDs. And so they used the scientific method and a lot of logic and science as they uh, deduced, um, you know, ailments and diseases from their patients when they saw them. And so uh, I was actually planning on becoming a physician myself. So when I went away to uh, that, I grew up in Eufaula, Oklahoma. And so when I went away to uh, the University of Oklahoma to get my bachelor's degree, I was taking a lot of science courses, uh, a lot of chemistry. And uh, when I announced to my father that I was in the pre-med option, he said, oh, no, you don't want to be a doctor. And I said, well, yeah, I do. Why not? And he said, oh, you're around sick people all the time. He said, it gets to be, to be depressing. You start to think everybody's a hypochondriac. And he just had this whole list of, uh, you know, reasons why not to be a doctor. So I switched, and I was farthest along in chemistry, so I got my bachelor's degree in chemistry. When you got your degree in chemistry and, and your father was very influential and said, don't be like me, you know, use, you know, use your, your knowledge for your abilities for uh, another path. So you went to graduate school at, at UT Austin. Was, was your plan when you're going to get a PhD and going into academia? I mean, that's, that's, that was the route that you were going to take? Yes. My father actually also said, he's, uh, you know, look for a profession where you'll be around people who are happy and you'll have an opportunity for lifelong learning and you'll enjoy what you're doing 
and you're not around sick people all the time. Um, if you'll think about it, when you go to the doctor, you know, that doctor is going from one cubby to another with a sick person, you know, a problem in each cubby. And, uh, you know, I look back on that now and I'm so glad he told me that because at the time I decided, well, I know what I want to do. I want to be a professor. I'll be around kids all my life. You know, students are, most of them are really pretty happy and it's an opportunity for lifelong learning and I love solving problems. So uh, here I am. Now that's, that, that's great. You have folks from different backgrounds who reach their path different ways. And you're right in the sense of most of us who've chosen an academic path is because we get to learn all the time. We get to be around young people who have ideas that can be out of left field, but something we hadn't thought about before. But it's really, really helpful and enriching for us as well as them. And solving problems. Yes. We're, we love to solve problems. I did even as a kid. Absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, we're just, uh, our, it's curious is in our DNA. <laughs> so I have a question regarding mentors. When you talk about being around uh, young people and, uh, and mentoring is obviously very, very important to you, but for you as you were training, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the mentors you had who made an influence on you, whether they were your PhD advisors, postdoc advisors or not? Uh, how did they help you uh, reach the point where you're at today? Yes, well, starting out, as I said, you know, I was watching my father and in my family, I was never taught that women couldn't do what men did. <laughs> so um, it didn't matter to me whether my mentors were male or female. And uh, so, um, you know, I sort of uh, looked around and watched what people were doing. You look to see how happy they are. You know, you look to see what pathways are available to you. Eventually, I did start to realize that while I thought women could do everything men could do, uh, that wasn't an opinion that was shared by everybody. And so, uh, you know, you have to spend a lot of time figuring out how to get around some people who uh, think that they're going to be obstacles for you, or maybe they even want to be obstacles for you. And so, you know, that can create a few extra steps along the way. But if you're savvy, you can figure out how to do that. But uh, when I started thinking about how to balance a family and a career, uh, you're right, you know, there weren't a lot of uh, role models out there. I mean, there was Marie Curie, and she was a good one. And I do recall, uh, you know, getting a book about her life and reading that. And then um, I was lucky, I was at University of Texas at Austin, and there was Marianne Fox there, who was, uh, she got tenure there and then uh, went on to be chancellor at University of California at San Diego. Um, and uh, when I went into the uh, graduate school there, she was actually pregnant at the time. And, uh, you know, you could watch her do everything while she was pregnant. And um, so that, uh, you know, that having that very close uh, to see uh, was helpful. She was also on my graduate advisory committee. Oh, so, that's, that's excellent. Yeah, I got to know her quite well. And I did 
Um, I do understand where young women are coming from. Um, you know, I think that uh, I th I think that frequently the women aren't so worried about can they do it, but they're worried about will other people let me do it? You know, will they get out of my way? <laughs> is more or less the question, and so I get a lot of questions from young women along those lines, and it's it's not that they're worried that they can't balance it, it's they're worried about the obstacles other people will put up for them. Yeah, that, I think that's really essential, and was that the impetus for the, Nel the Nelson Diversity Surveys? Yes, part of that, it, but it wasn't just issues of uh, balancing family and career. Um, I also saw a lot of, uh, I guess what you could call politics and, uh, you know, having to get around the politics or just address the politics and, um, you know, how to deal with it. And, you know, you can deal with it to a certain degree. You have to worry about um, being labeled a troublemaker, all sorts of those things. And I just, I, I uh, when I realized that the representation of minorities among STEM faculty was not quantified, I realized that that is something I could do. And so I decided that that would be my contribution to uh, help minorities. You know, I'm Native American. And so um, I was very much aware of the issues that minorities face in academia. And um, I could see that, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, is this really an issue? I mean, you know, are, you know, are, are there really not many uh, blacks or Hispanics uh, represented? And so I quantified it and that I did the Nelson diversity surveys um, was, my, was my means to do that. Now, I might mention also that the Nelson Diversity Surveys have their own Wikipedia page. So if anybody wants to really find out what the Nelson Diversity Surveys are, they can simply look on Wikipedia and learn a lot more about them. Now, one thing I think was very powerful about uh, your efforts was that it's not, it wasn't just a sample. <laughs> now, you did a lot of work to really uh, enumerate and, and encapsulate the uh, underrepresentation of women and, and minorities in um, the STEM disciplines, which was a, a particularly important service, I think. Well, when you're talking about the representation, and the representation can be very small numbers, like one or two uh, or even zero uh, of a particular group, like zero Native Americans in the top 50, say, chemistry departments as assistant professors or something like that. You can't get samples because uh, the statistical treatments that must be used on samples uh, will make those very small representations simply drop out. You, you can't apply them. And so we had to get the full populations. And a lot of times people don't understand what the term full population means. And it means that uh, you, you've heard people say, well, I got a 64% response rate. That was fabulous. Well, full population means 100% response rate. You get the whole 
population. Because if you are missing just one department and you say, well, there are no Native Americans among the assistant professors in the top 50, and, but we're missing one, people could say, well, how do you know that you don't have five at that one you're missing? So you have to have all of them. So you're quite right. Yes, and it was a lot of work getting that. It was. <laughs> but incredibly important, I think. And we did 15 disciplines. We did that, those surveys in 15 science, in 15 STEM disciplines. That's incredible. Yeah, I would absolutely uh, recommend to our, our listeners to really look into that, the amount of work and the, uh, the data uh, available there uh, in, the, in the surveys. Yeah, I guess one other thing I'd like to ask too, Don, it's it's uh, your role when you were uh, elected the 2016 president of the American Chemical uh, Society. Did, did that help you in help uh, advancing diversity as well? It gave you a really nice bully pulpit, I'll bet. Yes, I had a platform, and so I was able to do a few things along those lines. Of course, I did many, 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 but that was one of the things that I addressed. And so, uh, you know, we had some symposia on it and, and had proceedings in the form of a book, an American Chemical Society book, an ACS series book, um, you know, in which the speakers, each, each of the speakers wrote a, a chapter. And one of the things that uh, I was really happy to be able to do is that the first time I did those surveys, we uh, realized that there was only one black female among the top 50 chemistry departments, just one black woman professor. And so we were able to go to that department that had reported her and identify her. And um, when I became president, I decided this woman is so historically important because she was the only one and that meant she was the first also. And so uh, we were able to fly her out to the ACS meeting, which was in San Diego and do a, uh, a film of her with, with her and me on camera, just like you're interviewing me. And she told about her whole life, um, you know, and, and it was really great. And I thought this will be fabulous for uh, young black women to see this. And, um, you know, when the ACS and, and when other organizations uh, honored Percy Julian, who was a very famous black chemist early on, and I went to Washington, D.C. To, um, to be there when they debuted uh, his... Uh, the film that was created about him, I noticed that they had a lot of audio where he had spoken. They had captured that and they could show his photos as they played the audio, but they did not have one bit of video on him. And so his personality was somewhat lost by not having any video on him. And that's when I became uh, convinced that I had to, uh, to film uh, that uh, black woman yeah. young at University of Florida. Now that's phenomenal and as I think about George Washington Carver on my last visit to Tuskegee I think he was recorded I think there's some video of him and I think there's some audio of him 
but you know they have a little like museum there on campus of, of his work and, and it's but the stories at least that of history this is history this is american and scientific history it is and it's very important and when i called venetia young and i told her i want you i will pay for you to come to uh, san diego you know attend the acs meeting and we will capture you on film and she said oh no you don't want to film me you need to film somebody important <laughs> you know so um you know, a lot of times these people don't realize they are important. You know, she's very important. Yeah, I mean, they they lead by example. I think sort of like the uh, person at UT Austin who became Dr. Fox, who became a chancellor, uh, and she was <laughs> pregnant, as you said, and, and yet she just led by example. And that's one of the nice things that the most leaders you think the you think about those you respect the most. It's like they're not loud. They they lead by example, and you want to follow them because they really have something to share. Yes. So I, I guess there's other things that you do as well. You'll go out to audience audiences, and you'll talk about various aspects. And you you, you certainly are interested in in ensuring that there is is uh, not just truth, but truth, but I, I guess accuracy, say scientific accuracy, and whether you're talking to um, scientists or lay people or people in the, in the media, what really got you into or interested you in pursuing that? Let's say, per, for example, making sure that the chemistry, organic chemistry textbooks are, are correct. Well, there's <clears throat> a number of aspects to that. One is that we as scientists must respect the uh, scientific method and we have to uh, pay a lot of attention to uh, the peer-reviewed literature. That is the basis of our science. That's what ensures that we have a good foundation to build on. And so um, in the classroom, uh, we really need to base what we're teaching the students on the peer-reviewed literature. This was one of the things that um, made me start, um, you know, sort of studying all the different organic chemistry textbooks to start, um, you know, pointing out the inaccuracies in the textbooks. Um, on the subject of the, um, you know, the film, uh, the television, Breaking Bad, in that case, it's a little more about um, the, the uh, opinions that the public holds of science and scientists. And um, there's a lot of inaccuracies there also. And so my, my desire to get things correct just sort of transferred, you know, just overflowed on into that. But also, unless the uh, public has a respect for um, us, our scientists, and our work, um, it's going to be difficult to recruit um, the next generation and also, you know, into science. And also, it's going to be difficult to get adequate funding. The public must support science in order to get adequate funding for our research to keep our science strong. 
and we need to keep our science strong in order to keep our country economically strong and our uh, national security strong. So it, it, it impacts a lot of different things in our country. And so um, there had actually been a lot of concern about this expressed long before I became a science advisor for Breaking Bad. And I remember in Congress, one congressman making the remark, this was back in the probably late 1990s, he was saying, what, we, what this country needs is a hit television show, prime time, about science. And uh, of course, we've had a number of them, you know, CSI, etc., cetera, um, which I, I think is a fantastic show. Um, but when I saw Vince Gilligan interviewed in the ACS magazine, Chemical and Engineering News, and I saw them quoting him as saying, uh, you know, he was sort of like a, uh, oh, a science groupie. He didn't have formal training, but he loved science, and he understood why we needed to have correct science. Thank goodness he was the driving force for that. But they quoted him as saying, that he really wanted to get the science correct, but they didn't have any money for a science advisor. And so if uh, anyone in the chemical community uh, had any um, constructive comments, I remember that he said constructive comments, uh, he would be happy to hear them. And I thought, well, this is an invitation to have a science advisor. And so, um, you know, I thought about it and I finally decided, yes, you know, I would, be happy doing this on this show about illegal meth, you know, <laughs> um, which put me off a little initially. But um, I had the person who had had uh, written that article about him, that, uh, you know, uh, editor, contact him and say, well, we have a volunteer who is willing to help you. You know, you can contact her if you want. And they did. And so they were serious about it. And that's how we made contact is through that. And I might mention one other thing also, and that is, I think it was on my first set visit, I asked Vince, I said, you know, that ACS magazine went out to 167,000 ACS members. How many volunteers did you get? And he said, one. <laughs> So ACS has 167,000 members. Yeah, I think now it's gone down a little bit to 150-something. It's, it's quite a large organization. I still look at that and think, wow, I was the national president. That's really something. That, that is something to, to lead an organization like, like yeah, that. Yeah, and to get elected. Yes. <laughs> to yeah, get you have to be elected. <laughs> I, 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 for me, I, I think about, uh, about uh, getting science you know, the, the right message uh, of science across to lay folks. So neither of my parents went to college. And in fact, my mother, uh, I think she, she quit school at 16 and she went to um, get her GED with her next, our next door neighbor. And she graduated basically a year before my, my older sister. And, 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 but, she, but she did that and uh, they're still with us today. And, and what, I've tried to do as a scientist is to explain what I do and I feel compelled to be a bridge between those of us who do the, the science and those 
who are the recipients of our observations and our discoveries and the ones who pay for it. And it's important for us to make sure they know that their, their tax dollars are, and their uh, donations are going for the public good. And I've, I think it's very important for all of us to try to communicate that. And, and I, I hope this podcast is part of that as well, where we have folks who are interested in science and all the opportunities that scientists have to really connect with lay people because it doesn't matter if you have a degree or not. If you're interested in science, you're a scientist. Yes, well, when I became the science advisor on one of the set visits out there, um, you know, I had recognized that uh, actually I was going to have very few chances to influence very much um, the actual subjects that Vince was dealing with. You know, I would have opportunities to help them with what they were putting on the board or to get the pronunciation correct or to get the wording just precise, you know but not really change the plot significantly. And I thought I might be able to make one change. What would that one change that I could make be? And I decided it was that. So, um, you know, to try to influence the public to have more respect for scientists. And so from you know, almost every moment that I was there, anytime I talked to a person, I would be telling them, you know, the public just doesn't respect scientists enough. You know, they don't realize that every luxury they have, every benefit they have, the, the <clears throat> nice carpeting, their wonderful clothing, you know, the, the computers, the cars they drive, the perfumes they wear, the food they eat, they don't realize that it comes to them based on science, and uh, from scientists. And uh, I said, I, I just wish that that could be communicated to them. And near the end of the series, um, there was one episode in there named Box Cutter. You may remember it, in which uh, Walter White realizes that he's arguing for his life, you know, and he is saying, without us, you would have nothing, you know, and I thought, Hooray for that statement. I did get through, you know, and so uh, I was very happy to have made that tiny little impact. Yeah, it's, it's nice because when we're talking, you went into how you became the science advisor for Breaking Bad, which was really a, a nice uh, way to uh, talk about that. And rather than me asking a question, you got to just Tell the, the story of how it happened, which was really neat. So thank yeah. you, thank you for that. Yeah, it was fun. It's in terms of, oh, I know something else that you had done. So you had also participated, I guess you visited the set of, of um, some other shows as well, like The Big Bang Theory. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, it's, it's really different, you know, because they, uh, that was filmed live. Yeah, and so all the laughter and everything that you hear in there is really coming from the audience. And so um, it's a bit different. Um, they, uh, oh goodness, I'm not going to be able to think of the, uh, they have a science advisor on there who is a physicist, and his name is escaping me right now. But he, he is 
really good. But every now and then, you know, something will have too much chemistry in it or too much, and it gets a little bit outside of his expertise. So there were a couple of things that he asked me about, but he also invited me on the set. Um, I think I went twice, and it, it was a really nice experience. There are some similarities and some huge differences, you know, because you have to be really careful because the, uh, you know, the audience is there. Now, with Breaking Bad, you don't have to worry about the audience, and they can do a whole lot of retakes, but on Big Bang Theory, they just don't. You know, so you have to be extra careful. But I remember um, being told that that this program that he has, the, their science advisor has, of bringing a scientist in as a visitor, oh, maybe once or twice a month, and the actors had named that little program Geek of the Week. <laughs> so I, I actually put that on my resume, that I was his Geek of the Week. I think it's David Salzberg is his name. And uh, that was so nice. He did that for us. Many of us scientists had us in as visitors so that we could see it. So is it he at one of the universities on the West Coast? I think in yes, California? UCLA. Yeah, yeah. In physics. Mm -hmm. I saw him at a, at a, like a graduate student meeting, I believe, out on the, in San Francisco. And he, they had a conversation with him. It was just great. Like you are writing things on the board, I think he does. He was doing the same thing for, yes. for, yes. for Big Bang Theory. Yes, yeah. And that's so that's very hands-on and a lot of fun, and and you get to really make everything real. I mean, it's accurate. It's it's how it's supposed to be, as you said. You teach them how to pronounce it properly, too, which is great. Yes. Well, one of the things that sort of drove me is as a, an organic chemistry teacher. Um, many times the students in my class, enrolled in my organic chemistry class, would come up and say, now, Dr. Nelson, you taught us this in class, but on TV, I saw this other thing taught, and they disagree. So who should I believe, you or the television? <laughs> and they, this is a true story. And I said, look, on television, they don't necessarily get it correct. I worry about it being correct. You need to pay attention to me. And so, uh, you know, that's just funny, but it's, it's a true story. So um, I do think it's very important for the uh, television uh, directors and producers to try to get these things correct. Now, I might mention one other point of interest is that on one of my set visits, Vince came up to me and said, uh, what do you think about making the myth blue? <laughs> and I said, I said, I wouldn't do it. And he said, why not? And I said, well, because myth is white. And he said, what if it's really pure? And I said, well, if it's really pure, it's going to be white. And he said, what if it's really, really, really pure? And I said, then it'll be really, really, really white. <laughs> but as you know, they went right ahead and made it blue because it was a plot device. Mm -hmm. noted. You know, Walt needed a, uh, a, a trademark for his product. And so this is the thing that if you're a uh, science advisor, you have to realize they're not trying to make a documentary. They're trying to make a popular show. And so, you know, it's fiction. And so not every single thing on there 
is going to be accurate. Sometimes they need plot devices or whatever, and, and they'll sacrifice the accuracy of the science. And if you're a science advisor in that case, you just, you have to just say, okay. It's, it's artistic license. It so, is. Okay, yeah. folks listening in here, blue meth is not real. It's uh, not blue. If it's pure, it's very white. If it's really, really pure, it's really, really white. Yeah. And that's a quote from Dr. Donna Nelson. So remember that. <laughs> so, so Donna, in, in all the things that you've done, and you think about the, the students you've taught and the other folks you've, you've trained and advised and mentored, as you think about folks, students, postdocs, who would think about reaching out uh, at this stage and preparing themselves to reach out, what kind of advice would you give them? Oh, well, um, you know, it depends on whether I'm talking to a mixed group or just um, all women, you know. But if uh, usually it's a mixed group. And so I will tell them, um, you know, shoot for the moon. Because if you shoot for the moon, you mount, might hit Mount Everest. You know, keep set high goals. And then I tell them, uh, don't let people discourage you. You know, because I think everything I ever did, uh, there was somebody that was discouraging me saying that's not, uh, you know, a good idea or no, you can't do that or whatever. And you have to just step back and think about it. And if you can correctly assess your own capabilities and you feel confident, then, you know, each person should just go right ahead and do what it is that they want to do. Don't let other people discourage you. Yeah, and then you have to, if you, you have to be able to recognize the opportunities and step forward and take them. Just like, uh, you know, I asked Vince, how many people volunteered? And he said, one, you know, and I was one out of 167,000 people. So you have to be able to recognize those opportunities. And then also there's a quote from Steve Jobs that I like, and I'm probably not going to get it right, but he, he was saying that in, uh, you know, people were saying, how were you able to uh, succeed in um, selecting these projects that were so successful. You know, if you had advice for other people um, about how to select successful uh, products, what would it be? And he said something like, you need to select, he said, look for the gaps. I remember that part, look for the gaps. You need to select things that are possible, that um, that are that fill a need, that um, you know that uh, aren't too expensive, you know, and that people will appreciate. And if you'll think about it, look back on the things he did, and that it describes every single one of his products. Yeah, I agree. He, quite a visionary, and it's those were those were intellectual leaps that we try to make as scientists and uh, more than just incremental. His were, his were not incremental at all. They were humongous yeah. leaps. And, and he was very much in tune with the public. Yeah, that's also a great point uh, where you have to really have your ear to the ground to really get a sense of what's, of what's needed and what people would, would really like to have. And, and it's like, how did you live without a microwave before they invented things like that? 
and that's that's excellent. So, do you have Donna? Do you have any upcoming projects on uh, scientific accuracy or or diversity that uh, you're looking forward to? Well, the uh, when I published in in peer reviewed journals, by the way. Uh, my reports of the textbooks, you know, when we were looking at them, the organic chemistry undergraduate textbooks, and we had analyzed them to see, you know, where the flaws were and things like that. And I published those, a number of them. And when the um, textbook publishers saw that, they approached me and, and said, would you write a textbook? <laughs> So I started thinking about that because I like to do things that are high impact. I like to do things that will reach the largest number of people possible, help the largest number of people possible. And I started thinking about, look at all of the students that are taking organic chemistry. If I can create an organic chemistry textbook that, uh, is, is, that would help them learn and also be correct, um, you know, that would be fabulous. I could really help a lot of people because organic chemistry is really, it's a subject that's really needed. I mean, look at all the pre-med, pre-vet, pre-dent, pre-pharmacy, you know, chemical engineering, on and on and on, biology, botany, zoology, you know, all of those uh, disciplines need organic chemistry. But the problem is, is I see teachers where they'll like water it down you know, oversimplify things to try to help the students get a grasp on it. And I don't think they're, you know, the students are happy because it makes it really easy. But in the long run, I don't think it's beneficial because the students, you know, need a rigorous course. So, um, you know, it is a challenge to make something really rigorous like that, <clears throat> you know, to be able to package it so that it will be easy for the students and yet still correct and so that's what i'm focusing on now and then i give a lot of talks i go out all the time uh, on speaking engagements and i really enjoy that i mean i don't know if you can tell it from this podcast or not but i do i know you also have a wikipedia page and yeah. and they show various photos of you in different places in the world uh and talking about your science advising and also certainly aspects of advancing diversity, which really you do it enough, I can tell that yeah, it's you do it because you really enjoy it and you feel as though you're you're contributing something and that's there's nothing better than than that. Yes. And when I did those surveys, one thing that it turned out that was unusual is you know you have your raw data. And I was told, oh, you don't want to release those raw data. I mean, the actual headcount numbers where you could, you know, look at one department and see what the actual headcounts were for that department and the breakdown. And I was told, no, no, you don't want to release those. You want to publish everything you can publish before you release those data. And I said, no, I'm releasing them now because I want other people to publish from these data. My goal isn't for me to get as many publications as possible. My goal is for as many people as possible to use these data to work and move the whole community forward. And so I released them, you know, instantly. And I'm, I'm very happy that I was able to do that. I sort of consider it an honor 
to have had that opportunity to do something that significant for the community, for the scientific community. Yeah, I, I don't think I could ask for a better ending for our interview than that. So I thank you, thank you Donna. So I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Donna Nelson, for sharing some stories of her many accomplishments and interests. I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast today. Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website, SoundCloud, and on iTunes under IUSM Pathways. Also, in addition to the audio from our broadcasts, for some of our interviews, we've captured the video as well. You can see these on the IU School of Medicine Pathways YouTube channel. Join us next time on Pathways as we explore the career path of another professional who holds a PhD in the sciences and how they use their education and background for the greater public good. I'm Randy Brutkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Brutkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.